I'm sure you've heard the phrase, you can't change other people, you can only change yourself. Well, it's not true. And in fact, if you're a leader or a manager, it's your obligation to change other people, to help them become better at what they do. And if you just care about the people in your life, then it's your longing to help them change in ways that support their own growth and development and become the best people that they can be. So in my new book, which is now available for pre-order, I wrote it with my friend Howie Jacobson. It's called You Can Change Other People, The Four Steps to Help Your Colleagues, Employees, Even Family Up Their Game. We talk about ways of becoming an ally instead of a critic and to help people make the kinds of changes in their lives that make their lives better. You can get it wherever books are sold. To find out more, go to bregmanpartners.com forward slash pre-order. I hope you get the book and I hope it helps you to have more effective conversations with the people in your life. Hello and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. Today with us, we have Don Moore. He's a professor of management uh, of organizations at the University of California at Berkeley's Haas School of Business. He teaches popular courses in leadership, negotiations, decision-making, and he has written the book, Perfectly Confident, How to Calibrate Your Decisions Wisely. Uh, I'm very excited to have him on the show. Don, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thanks, Peter. Great to be with you. All right. So I want to ask my first question, um, which is on a scale of one to 10, how confident are you about, <laughs> about your performance on this podcast and our conversation? Oh, man. Well, um, so uh, scale of one to 10 lacks external validity because I don't know what those numbers mean. We, have, we ought to be more specific about uh, what, what, what those numbers signify. And okay, then I so would like to be well calibrated about uh, <laughs> my future performance. So the answer will have to depend on that. Okay. So, so that, that is a good tee up to the rest of our conversation. So we understand, you know, how to answer a question like that in, in a reasonable and informed way that can help us uh, 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 fulfill our expectations more accurately. So, uh, so thank you for being on the show, Don. And, <laughs> and, and, and my uh, second question then will be, what is confidence? It is a great question. And people use the term in all sorts of incoherent and inconsistent ways in lay usage. So my nerdy academic head strives for greater clarity in what that means. Academics have studied confidence and overconfidence in three specific ways. One is estimation. And when you overestimate yourself, you think that you're better, more capable than you actually are. Overplacement is thinking that you're better than others to a greater degree than you actually are. And overprecision is the excessive faith that you know the truth. What should be obvious for each of these three is that there's a benchmark of accuracy in each case. Where, for overplacement, it's where do I actually place relative to others? For overprecision, it's how often am I actually right? And how does that compare with my confidence that I am right? 
So a lot of people write books about like, you know, how to be more confident. And, and you're writing a book about how to be less confident. You're writing a book about saying, or how to be, that's not fair, how to be, well, it is fair, actually. You're writing a book about how to be more accurately confident, which based on your research suggests that we should all be a little less confident because people tend to overestimate their their abilities in situations the idea that you know 80 percent of us say that we're above average drivers yeah so there are lots of circumstances like with driving where people typically um, are overconfident but in my book i also highlight circumstances in which we're typically underconfident that's the imposter syndrome where lots of people have the sense that they're not good enough or that others are better than they are when in fact Others aren't better than they are, and they are up to the task. So my book is a, a plea and uh, an encouragement to calibrate one's confidence so that you avoid the risks and dangers of overconfidence, and you avoid selling yourself short by being underconfident. So it's not the case that more confidence is always better. So you correctly note the preponderance of books and podcasts and sermons and advice, telling people to be more confident as if somehow you wanna maximize confidence. Well, that's, that's easily and demonstrably false. There are lots of circumstances where you can get yourself in all sorts of trouble by being overconfident and being well calibrated is the solution. There's this joke that we, um, Eleanor, my wife is from the South and there's this joke that we have where it's like the, you know, the down South like the the famous last words is "Hey y'all, watch this," and, <laughs> and, then, and then the second person's famous last words are "That ain't nothing. Hold my beer." So th those uh -huh. are examples of like those are the things you say before a move of overconfidence. Uh huh. Um, I I think this imposter syndrome is really really interesting too. So I want to make sure that we cover both of those. You said in your book that in your research you rarely find gender differences in confidence. Um, non nonverbal confidence expression and interpretation of others' confidence. But I've, I, I sort of feel like in my personal anecdotal uh, experience, I've seen that different. And when I actually look at some of the research, I'm sure I'm going to get these numbers a little wrong, but I've heard that, you know, like a man applies for a job if he has, you know, three or four of the 10 qualifications, where a woman only applies when she has all 10 of the 10 qualifications. And I don't know that those numbers are right, and it's an aggregate. But but th there does seem to be a difference in, you know, on the whole, in how men versus women uh, approach the confidence with which they approach decisions or, or situations. And you're saying that in your research, you have not found that to be the case. Popular consensus has totally run away with this idea that men are overconfident and women aren't, that they are perhaps on average underconfident. And it's hard to find those effects in the lab. Uh, they occur for very specific tasks, for male stereotype tasks, and only for specific sorts of overconfidence, most often overplacement, and they don't last very long, and they tend to evaporate as soon as you provide a little bit of feedback, and they don't map on to gender stereotypes all that closely either. And if the prescription is, hey, ladies, step up your game and match the men, if 
on average, the men are overconfident. That seems like terrible advice. So um, I'm dubious of the pervasiveness of gender differences in overconfidence and skeptical of the advice that has emerged from this popular consensus. I think if you closely examine the evidence, it does not support the interpretation that so many people have gone to. Got it. Okay. And I'm still unpacking the definition of confidence a little bit. And I want to, I want to, um, bring you to a large part of your introduction where you talk about the Tony Robbins firewalk and, and you, you know, you, you do the firewalk. This is an exercise. I've done it too. It's an exercise where you walk along burning coals and, you know, you paused for a while and hung out and had a conversation, but no, you didn't do that, but you did at the end, um, forget to make sure that all the coals were, uh, outside of, you know, off of your feet and you ended up burning your feet. Yeah. And here's a quote. You said, what a fool I had been for what? Was I trying to impress Oprah? Oprah was there as well. She was too busy with her own firework walk to notice what I was up to. The other participants, I would never see these people again. Was I trying to impress myself? Whatever benefit I might have enjoyed from feeling that I could overcome scary obstacles had been quickly undone by the fact that I had tried walking through fire and had gotten burned. And and I, what I wonder about, I, I think there's tremendous wisdom uh, and insight into what you wrote, because I imagine that you, and, and you tell me if this is right, that you may have walked across fire without necessarily being confident, meaning you might have done it because for all these reasons, yes, Maybe you were trying to impress Oprah. Maybe you were trying to impress the other participants. You were part of a group frenzy and you were doing it with like the way everyone else was doing it. You didn't want to be the one person who wasn't doing it. But I don't know how, I mean, when I did it, I did it, but was I 100% sure that I wouldn't get burned? Absolutely not. I was not. I, I mean, I, I was confident enough, I guess, to do it, but I had no bravado when I did it. And and I, I don't know, I like, I, I took confidence from the fact that, you know, talk about placement, other people were doing, I certainly was not the first one to do it. And, you know, other people were doing, and they weren't getting burned. And I thought, well, I'll probably be just like them. But, but I wonder whether we, we act in, in ways that others might call confidence, but don't actually reflect our own confidence, since confidence is so much more about an inner belief than an outward display. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it's interesting to tease those two apart. My uh, reaction to your description of your firewalk experience is that it sounds like you were wiser and better calibrated that day than I was. So I got carried away drinking the Kool-Aid that Tony Robbins was serving. Um, my recollection of the hours before the firewalk was just building the crowd to this frenzy of enthusiasm, yeah. helping us believe that we could do it. It would be okay. We could walk through fire. And I was insufficiently cautious. Right. It's interesting. But, and, and was that, and you were insufficiently cautious because you're saying you were confident that nothing would go wrong. Uh-huh. And that right. was an error. That's an experience with a great deal of risk. And in his defense, Robbins admonished us that we better make sure to wipe the embers off our feet and get our feet sprayed off. I, yeah, I moved a little too fast through that step and, and suffered the consequences. Now, you, you distinguished between the inner belief 
and the outer display. And there are plenty of interesting circumstances when those diverge. Uh, it's also the case that when we talk about leadership or entrepreneurship, lots of people have talked about the importance of displaying confidence and also the fact that those displays may be most persuasive when they're demonstrated by someone who actually believes them. And there's the danger there, obviously, if you've got a delusional leader, one who has um, incorrectly estimated their chances of success, they can lead their organization into very dangerous territory. Um, there's a quote that I want to share with you, and it's from, for some reason right now, I'm completely, uh, I wrote the quote down and I'm completely elapsing on, on, on what it's from. But I, I, it was King Azaz and Milo and the Mathemagician. It was a, a, a something in time. I will remember before the end of, it's a great story and a great book. And I don't know With why. The Phantom Tollbooth? Yes, thank you. Thank you. The Phantom Tollbooth. Um, and, and it's after Milo comes back from his quest, which was successful. And, and, and this, this part of the story comes where he comes back and, and he's uh, celebrated and, and the king says, that's why, said King Azaz, there was one very important thing about your quest that we couldn't discuss until you returned. I remember, said Milo eagerly, tell me now. It was impossible, said the king, looking at the mathemagician. Completely impossible, said the mathemagician, looking at the king. Do you mean, said the bug, who suddenly felt a bit faint? Yes, indeed, they repeated together. But if we told you then you might not have gone. And as you've discovered, so many things are possible just as long as you don't know they're impossible, right? <laughs> and this seems, I've always loved this quote, but it seems completely counter to what you're describing around confidence. And, and you also talk about Elon Musk in, in your book, who's a very interesting example of someone that other people might say pursues things that are uh, impossible, fails half the time, uh, but you know, is also a billionaire and sends rockets up into space and has built, you know, the, the most successful new car company, certainly in the last hundred years or whatever. Uh -huh. So I'm kind of curious for you to think about that with us or, yeah, or share yeah, your yeah. perspective. On. Thank you. Thank you for that challenge. I, I love that. So uh, first thing to note is that the king was very poorly calibrated. Obviously, if Milo succeeded, it wasn't impossible. Right. Nevertheless, the question remains whether some of us may accomplish more by fooling ourselves about what is possible. There are circumstances when believing in yourself contributes to your success. And there will be circumstances when believing too much in yourself contributes to your failure. The analogy that I draw in the book is a story that I find highly instructive that comes from the great psychologist, William James, who tried to make the case as passionately as he could for the value of believing in yourself. And the parable he recounted was one in which he imagined that he was on an alpine journey from on which he, he found himself stuck in a spot uh, where he had to cross a chasm, make a jump across a gap in order to, to proceed uh, on the voyage. Uh, and he imagines that self-doubt might impair his ability to jump. In such a circumstance, he wrote, I would be a fool not to believe in myself. 
I should summon up all my courage, believe that I can make it and jump as far as I can. Okay, possible that believing in himself could make it possible for him to jump a six foot chasm when the doubting William James would only have been able to make it five feet, plausible. Does that mean he should always believe in himself? What if the chasm is 10 feet wide? Leaping to your death, however, it dis however much confidence it displays in your own abilities, seems like an error. And so the belief that he can make it six feet is true if his confidence translates into a longer jump. But that's good calibration. That's not overconfidence. And, and you're saying that good, good calibration helps us both in terms of reducing our confidence to realistic levels and raising our confidence to realistic levels, meaning the solution to overconfidence is the same solution to imposter syndrome or underconfidence. Yeah. And that is the key motivating role that coaches and so often parents find themselves in where they're dealing with a team member or a kid who's scared, who's doubting themselves, and you know that they can do it. They are underconfident. If only it would summon up their courage and dive in, you know that they could succeed. And so building them up to the point where they're willing to engage is a crucial motivating role. That doesn't mean telling them that they can do anything, that they can leap tall buildings in a single bound, but that they can be anyone that they want to be. When my 11-year-old started talking about his career in the NBA, I said, that's great. I love it that you enjoy basketball. The probability is very small that you will play in the NBA, at least judging by the athletic talents you've inherited from your parents. Keep studying in your other classes too. Share with us, uh, Don, a, a couple of techniques, a couple of ways that we can calibrate our confidence. Yeah, great question. One way is to look to precedent and understand base rates. How often have others succeeded in the way that you want to succeed? Now, if that binds you to your history or to what others have achieved, that might limit the possibility for surprising, magnificent future endeavors. So imagining what's possible is very helpful. Seeking input from critics and skeptics also very helpful. And if there is a single general purpose debiasing strategy that psychology has identified as useful across a number of different domains, it is this. Ask yourself why you might be wrong. Consider the opposite. And taking that perspective is enormously helpful, especially when it comes to debiasing the excessive faith in the accuracy of our knowledge. If there are other people out there in the world who disagree with you, smart, well-intentioned people, try to understand their perspectives. Even if it doesn't change your mind, it will help enlighten your understanding of your own views. So it's interesting because in this age of, you know, people receiving the data that reinforces their own viewpoint. Basically, we just funnel information that reinforces our views of whatever we think. So how do we break out of that dynamic? Oh, man, great question. As business people, as citizens, understanding those who disagree with us is enormously important. It's a key part of the culture of some of the more successful businesses out there. 
at Amazon and in Netflix, the culture holds that it is an obligation to respectfully disagree with others who you think might be making a mistake. Reed Hastings at Netflix learned this the hard way uh, when his, the morale, the support that he enjoyed at Netflix quieted criticism of his big move to split Netflix into quick flicks, which would deliver DVDs and Netflix, which would deliver streaming content. I don't know if you remember that debacle. It almost destroyed the company. And in following up with his people afterwards to understand what happened, many of them confessed doubts that they were reluctant to voice to him because they knew that he was so passionate about the project. It was at that point that he tried to implement systems and routines like farming for dissent that made sure that before the company made a big decision that managers would be required to collect discrepant points of view, to hear the disagreement from those around them and to figure that into their plans. Okay, so listening to other people's perspectives and points of view, especially those people who, who you know disagree with you and using that to, to calibrate. Um, what else? You talk about, you, 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 in your book, you, you draw from Phil Tetlock and Annie Duke, both of whom I adore and both of whom have been on the show, um, about probabilities. So share with us a little, give us a baseline on probabilities. Uh, uh, much of the way that I think about probabilities comes from my collaboration with Phil Tetlock on the Good Judgment Project, where we tried to help people get better at thinking probabilistically about an uncertain future making smart bets, avoiding black and white thinking where you pretend like you know what's going to happen is good for anyone who wants to be well calibrated in their confidence. The future isn't perfectly knowable. It is a set of probabilities. And when you meet someone who's got different views from you, asking them, as Annie Duke recommends, as poker players do to one another, asking, want to bet? is extremely instructive. Happens routinely that I'm talking with my colleagues about anything from whether a paper is gonna be published to whether the school is gonna make some commitment to hire someone. We're talking about different bets on an uncertain future. And when we disagree, I often say, wanna bet? We agree on some stakes, some probability, and then track that bet for a future payoff. But it helps both of us discipline our thinking on the subject and acknowledge that um, although ultimately one will be right and one will be wrong, the future is uh, best thought of as a distribution of probabilities that nobody knows for certain. And when they disagree, it's helpful to understand the perspectives of those who disagree with us. So I've loved, since I, I read Robert Rubin's book maybe you know 20 years ago, whenever it came out, which was really my first encounter with this idea of, of prob probabilistic decision-making. What I've found challenging about it is 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 the fact that like the the from an application of everyday decisions um in the end there we're, we're not often making like sometimes we're making yes or no decisions or we have you know we have to make yes or no decisions we're not making probabilistic decisions and and we don't necessarily have enough data to you know like if i'm if i'm investing in stocks and i'm going to have a basket of 20 stocks and i look at it and i go all right if you know, 
you know, if if I'm if I'm always choosing a stock where I've got a 60% chance that it's going to go up, over to I'll lose money sometimes, but over time I'll 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 make money. If I'm deciding to like, you know, start a business or do you know like some big massive decision, I'm not sure that probabilistic thinking works very well. You give a great story about about doing it in your uh, for your wedding and figuring out how many guests are going to arrive and how many people that you can invite. But, you know, here's a question I'm thinking about, uh, I, I've discussed with my family, like buying a house outside of the city. And we've talked about like, well, how about like Vermont? Let's, let's get a small cabin somewhere in Vermont. What is the likelihood that I'm going to be happy with having a house in Vermont? Like, how, how do I, what's my, you know, my confidence levels all over the place. Like I wouldn't bet you on it because I don't know that I have enough data to create a probability. So help guide me in that, in a decision like that. Wow. Okay. Okay. So there, there are a bunch of components there. So uh, sometimes we can make decisions that take into account probabilities. And certainly when it comes to investing, there's a quantitative decision about how much to invest and acknowledging the risk of any one investment, we can choose to place hedging bets. Um, The entrepreneur, the leader who's all in is really putting a lot of their eggs in that one basket. That doesn't mean they have to lie to themselves or others about the prospects of success. Jeff Bezos is a nice example who told early investors in Amazon, there's a 70% chance I'm going to wind up losing any money you give me. So don't invest unless you can afford to lose it. Basically, he was saying there are lots of ways in which this operation can fail, but the upside is big enough. If I succeed, it might still be worth it. He talks about the bets that Amazon makes now that they routinely place bets that he would guess have a 90% chance of failure. But it can still be rational to take that bet if the payoff is better than 10 to 1, right? If it's a 1,000 to 1 payoff, Amazon has hit the jackpot on some of its low probability bets, and that's enough to power the company. So um, you can be well calibrated and still think, this is totally worth it, even though the probability of failure is higher than the probability of success. So what do we do with that knowledge? Well, so if you're putting a bunch of your eggs in one basket, like you just got one career and you're going to give this one a shot, you might want to hedge that, right? You don't liquidate all your retirement accounts and uh, uh, get a second mortgage on your house and um, max, max out all your credit cards to fund this entrepreneurial venture. Like you want a safety cushion there such that when it fails, you aren't going to wind up face down in the gutter or living in a cardboard box. So you can hedge your bets in interesting ways. If you're concerned you won't be happy at your place in Vermont, you can hedge your bets, right? So you buy a place that you can resell. When there are people who try to be nice and assure me that some enterprise I'm undertaking, like writing a book or something like that, making an investment, they assure me, oh, it's going to be fine. You're going to succeed. No problem. I say, want to bet? I take the other side of that bet so that if my book doesn't wind up earning me bestseller royalties, at least I'll have the money of the people who are so ready to bet on my success. So are you kind of a gambler? 
Um, I'm not very good at poker, if that's what you're asking. So I don't play a lot because I realize when I do play, I mostly lose money. It is sort of fun. But yeah, when I see a positive expected value bet, I'm totally in. So I mean, I'm just wondering where, how this is, how my view of my confidence is impacted by my risk averseness or my willingness to take risk. Like, like I, I imagine my willingness to take risk means I might take the the if I if I have a high willingness to take risk, I might take that 90-10 bet for the high return, where someone else might take, you know, a 60-40 bet for a much lower return. Um, well calibrated confidence should guide your ability to make uh, decisions with positive expected value. I don't gamble in Vegas because those are negative expected value bets. On average, I will lose money no matter how smart I am in placing right. smart bets in Vegas. The only way to win is by getting lucky, and you can't count on being lucky in the long term. But you right. can count on making decisions, and the recommendation there is don't gamble in Vegas. So <laughs> should you be risk-averse risk or risk-seeking? I don't think you should be either. I think a wise decision maker is on balance risk neutral. Right. Um, I'm, I'm realizing as I'm talking to you that, that there's an underlying question for me and I've been skirting around it, but it's, but to me, it, it hits a little bit at the core of the issue, which is confidence or lack of confidence is an emotional response, which you are meeting with an intellectual uh, approach. And, and, I, and I wonder, like in your experience in helping people through this, like how do you, you know, meeting an emotional challenge with an intellectual solution, um, like makes sense in, in the scheme, you know, in, in the rational world, but often doesn't play out so much because, because you know, it's because you're, your, the, it's two different conversations. It's two different parts of your brain that are communicating. Um, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. Guilty as charged. So I wouldn't be the first professor who um, over-intellectualizes a, uh, a feeling that people have in everyday life. Psychologists have attempted to capture the feeling that you're describing, and optimism, optimism is the term they use most often. Sometimes people talk about hope as well. And the subjective sense of optimism is an important form of utility in life. Savoring the prospect of a bright future delivers enormous pleasure. If that savoring is about some imagined future outcome, you're going to be rich, you're going to be crowned emperor of the world, you're going to be pope someday, like these are factually verifiable states, and deluding yourself about that future state of the world is dangerous. But there's a, a different dimension of optimism that it's just that's just a feeling like good things are going to happen to me or aren't I lucky to have the sort of life that I have? Um, I think that that can be perfectly adaptive if basically all you're doing is noting how much worse it could be and how fortunate you are to enjoy the privileges that you have, right? We are in the United States, we are among the most prosperous 
people in the world. We enjoy so many luxuries and pleasures. And still, there are plenty of people who go around feeling bad about the fact that they can't afford a 16th television or their house isn't as big as other people that they know or they wish they got paid more. Um, yeah, you can go around thinking about these upward counterfactuals, the better states of the world that might have been possible, or you can appreciate how sweet you've got it. And if it makes you feel better to be to ha have a more optimistic assessment of your life, well, then that's what you should believe, as long as it doesn't involve lying to yourself in a way that will lead you to make bad decisions. What's the middle way? <laughs> the middle way, as I try to guide readers of my book, is toward well-calibrated confidence that avoids both the risks of over and underconfidence, where inaccurate beliefs lead people to make mistakes that reduce the quality of their decisions. Um, and, and you do that in the methods that we're talking about, like using probabilistic thinking and, and uh, finding the arguments, you know, listening to information that counters your information and things like that. And other Indeed. things that are in your book, right? right. Yeah, exactly. So I, I draw some connections to philosophical and religious traditions that advocate moderation in life. I think that they're... Uh, is tremendous wisdom in those traditions in thinking about the risks of excess or insufficiency and thinking about how to live our lives so that we are just right. You know, one of the things I'm really getting uh, from this conversation that you've mentioned a few times is the sort of fun and usefulness of gambling with people, you know, like making bets on, you know, if you believe in a certain future and they, like, it's a way of, of bringing home. I have a friend who's actually a, a trader and he was a very senior level leader at a bank. Uh, but at his heart, he's a trader and he's constantly betting and wanting to bet, you know, on things. And it's both fun, but it also forces you to think about, you know, where you think the risk reward is, or, you know, like how confident are you really mm -hmm. on a particular outcome? Um, and, and it's a, a delightful discipline to our judgment to think through that problem. Want to bet? How much do you believe? How much do I believe this? Am I willing to bet? Right. And what can seem like uh, bold, confident proclamations like, you know that Donald Trump is going to be elected president again in, in 2024. Really? How bet. likely is it that he runs as a candidate? How likely is it that he gets a Republican nomination? How likely is it conditional on those two that he ultimately winds up winning? That's got to be less than 100%. It's greater right. than zero. But thinking through the things you say you believe is very right. helpful. Right. That's great. Um, anything you feel like we haven't discussed that's important to raise so that listeners can hear? Confidence can feel good. And so there's a bit of a, a siren song that is sung by all of the popular books that you opened with that recommend greater confidence. Just believe in yourself. And there's, there can be something delicious about believing, yourself, believing in yourself in that moment. But if what you're believing is wrong, the book, The Secret, encourages people to believe in their fondest wishes. If only they believe hard enough, it'll come true. 
you're setting yourself up for disappointment. Companies right. that inflate expectations for their success too much are punished by a market that is disappointed by their earnings announcement. You want to think about what the future holds in a way that allows you to calibrate those expectations. Yeah, I, I love that. I appreciate that. And 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 you you also make this point in the book that I think is really useful, which which says basically, like use smart process in making decisions and recognize that, and here's the exact the exact quote. While probability forecasts are continuous, ranging from zero to 100%, the actual outcomes are much lumpier. Things happen or they don't. So you could have something that's a probability of 70% and, and you fail at it, and that doesn't mean that you were wrong. It means that, you know, now, if you did it 100 times and you failed it every single time, <laughs> then it means that you were wrong. Mm -hmm. But to recognize that results are often you know, a yes or no. Uh, and, and so that as long as you have a good process for making decisions, that you can, you know, be confident in continuing to move forward in your process uh, and making the kinds of decisions that you're making. You can regret your bad luck, but you needn't beat yourself up for having made a mistake or having chosen an error you placed a smart, positive expected value bet that went against you. And if at the outset you acknowledge that probability, eh, I think it'll work, but I can't be guaranteed, then you can feel good that you made a good decision even if you got unlucky. Thank you. Don Moore, he is the author of the new book, Perfectly Confident, How to Calibrate Your Decisions Wisely. Uh, it has been such a pleasure having you on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us, Don. Pleasure is mine. Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you wanna become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, Check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today, and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.